Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our morning service. Thank you, Ray, for the enthusiasm there. Um, great to see you all, and welcome to those joining us online as well. Welcome to all faces. Good to see the high marshals here. And anybody who's new here, lovely to have you here for the first time. Do hope you enjoy yourself with us, and look forward to uh, to getting to to know you in due course. One of the um, the things that's important for us as Christians to do is to engage with the culture in which God has placed us, and to understand what people think, and why they think that, uh, and so we can therefore present the Christian point of view in a way which is sensitive, in which, in which we can engage in healthy debate. And one of the topical issues we'll be looking at uh, this evening is that of assisted suicide, where campaigners continue to seek a change in the law to make that legal. Uh, how would you respond if you are a Christian. We'll come along this evening at six o'clock and we'll be looking at that subject together. Another area is that of sexuality. Um, as Christians, again, we have a better story to tell, um, a better story than the culture around us. So come next Saturday morning um, when Andy Robinson will be speaking on this subject, doing a series of three seminars on sexuality, uh, Bible, church and culture. Uh, 9.30 Saturday morning, do please sign up with the email invite you should have received. Um, really important that we equip ourselves, our children, um, to be able to engage in this uh, discussion. Well, our sermon series in Mark's uh, Gospel has been building up to a, a critical point. Uh, throughout the series, Jesus has been revealing who he is to his disciples, uh, that he's a leader, he's a teacher, he's somebody who performs miracles, he even raises people from the dead. But ultimately, he is the Messiah, God's anointed king, who's come to save us from our sins. And the series reaches a critical point this morning, as Jesus asks his disciples the question, who do you say I am? And that's the question Jesus asks us today, who do you say I am? Not what others think, but what do you think? It's an important question we all have to answer, because it will affect where we spend eternity. If we are already Christians, then in the words of our first song, we can sing this together about Jesus Christ. I believe in our Lord Jesus, God's own Son who came to earth, born a man by the Spirit, by a virgin given birth. I believe that Jesus suffered on the cross. He bore my shame. I believe that he was buried, then triumphant, rose again, glorified. He has ascended seated at the Father's side. He will come again in judgment. Justice will be satisfied. Right, let's pray together. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Father in heaven, thank you that we can come to you this morning as our Father, a Father who listens, who cares, who lavishes love on us. Thank you that you are our Father in heaven. You reign above all things. You are mighty and powerful. Help us to come to you in our weakness, trusting you and depending on you for everything. Father, we are sorry when we forget how much you love us. Sorry when we doubt your care for us, when things don't go to our plans. Sorry when we love other things and people more than you. Please forgive us our sin. 
And thank you that whatever happens, you do, you do not forget us. Father God, when we look at the world around us, there are so many good things we have to be thankful for. But there are also so many things that are broken and sometimes we just don't know how to feel. Please, Father, give us your compassion for those who are suffering. We pray and lift before you the devastating conflict in Israel and Gaza. We pray, Father, for innocent people who are in need, those who have lost loved ones. Father, we pray for an end to violence and fighting. We pray for peace to reign. Father, please have mercy. And for other countries going through war or poverty, natural disasters, we pray for practical provisions and aid to be getting to the right places. We pray for your help. And above all things, we pray that you would be made known even in these difficult situations. Father, in North India, we pray for David and Binny Makaya, who are leading a church there. Thank you, God, for their faithfulness and desire to teach God's word. And we pray for them now as they face these ongoing difficult challenges from others, that God would give them the strength to stand firm in truth of the Bible and in the face of opposition. Father, we pray that today they would know they're not alone and I pray that there will be encouragements that spur them on. We pray for our community here and the people around us. Thank you that the gospel is good news for all people. And we praise you that, that those struggling with addiction are meeting Jesus, that they're, they are putting their trust in him. And we pray for many more to become Christians. We thank you that the CA and Al-Anon groups are able to meet here in the church building. And please, Father, give us wisdom and discernment as a church as to what being involved in this recovery ministry might look like. Thank you for Ollie's journey of faith and the desire that he has to help others in recovery come to know you. Please would you guide him and Natalie in their life and ministry as to how they can serve you too. Father, we praise you for contact and we thank you for the new people from the community and church family who have come along recently. We pray for Val as she continues to read the Bible with a group of ladies. And we lift you the plans for the Christmas celebrations, especially as they give out some Advent readings. And we pray that this ministry would point those people to Jesus and help them to know him. This week, we pray for the Lighten Up Party taking place in Tame on Tuesday. Would it be a wonderful celebration of Jesus, the true light, who has overcome darkness? And we pray for families as they have conversations with neighbours and friends around Halloween. We pray for the sexuality seminar on Saturday. We pray that it will be a really good opportunity to engage with a sensitive but, but very important topic. And we pray for Andy Robinson as he prepares for that time and pray it would help us individually and as a church. Father, thank you that you have prepared good works in advance for us to do. And we long to serve you wherever we are, at home, at school, at work, in church and in the community. And Lord, we continue to pray for Neil and Liz and Colin and Vicky as they discern where they should serve you in ministry. Please help them to trust you in the coming days and weeks, particularly when things feel uncertain. And give them strength to listen to your voice and follow where you lead them. Help us as a church to love and support them in this journey, whatever happens and to be united in the gospel and as a church, whatever changes might come. Father, we lift up to you those who are grieving, 
We especially pray for Alan Gibson and the whole family. We pray ahead of Jacqueline's funeral on Friday. Please comfort them with your loving arms and give them peace that Jacqueline is safe with you. We pray that the service will be a wonderful joy and celebration of her life and faith. Father, we also pray for those who are sick or struggling in different ways. We pray for John Ismay. We thank you that he has been deemed fit for the surgery. But we pray for John and for Barbara as they prepare for this significant operation. We also pray for Steve Smith, struggling with a viral infection. Please have your healing hand on him. And for those who we know personally who are in need at the moment, in many different ways, we lift them to you. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to read and hear from your word together. Um, We pray for the fellowship at Christ Hill Methodist Church this morning and for John Billet as he preaches there. And we pray for Val as she comes and reads your word to us here. And for Saab as he comes and explains it to us. Please help him to be faithful and clear. And please help us to listen well and to have a hunger to hear what you have to say to us today. And all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, starting to read at verse 22. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Val, thanks very much indeed for reading for us this morning. Uh, it'd be great help if you could keep your Bibles open, uh, follow along, but let me just pray uh, for us uh, before we start. Father, would you uh, please help me, help me speak clearly uh, the words that you have given me. And uh, I pray for all of us that we would have attentive hearts. Uh, would you please help us uh, see your truth? Would you please help us see and meet with the Lord Jesus this morning by your spirit and through your word? And in his name we pray. Amen. It was a cold and foggy October morning. In 1995, uh, the U.S. North Atlantic Fleet uh, was just off Newfoundland, the Canadian coast. Uh, the aircraft carrier, USS Abraham uh, Lincoln, was uh, returning to port after a malfunction on some of its radar uh, and communication systems. And the U.S. Navy released a transcript of the conversation between the captain on the deck of the carrier as it approached shore with its limited radar. And uh, the dialogue goes like this. The USS Lincoln, unidentified vessel. They've clocked that there's something in the water. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. Unidentified vessel. Recommend you, divert, you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. USS Lincoln. Uh, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Unidentified vessel. No, I say again, you divert your course. USS Lincoln. Uh, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln. It's the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Unidentified vessel. This is a lighthouse. Your call. With limited visibility, the captain of the aircraft carrier was certain of what he thought he saw. He was certain that the blip on the radar was a boat in the water. All the data that he had, his vast experience of the North Atlantic region, uh, gave him a great deal of certainty that with this impressive ship, that he knew what it is that he saw. And his perspective was that the blip on the screen was another ship. And that ship needed to change its course. Because he believed he was too powerful and too important to be wrong. Realising that his his perspective actually was wrong, but that changed everything. That changed everything. 
And in our reading this morning, Jesus asks his disciples, and by extension, he's asking us this morning, what our perspective is on who Jesus is. Uh, In our reading this morning from Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks two questions. And we're going to use those questions to frame the way that we're going to look at the passage. And and the questions are this. Uh, Firstly, who do they, who do they say that I am? It's verse 27. And then verse 29. Who do you say I am? So firstly, who do they say I am? Now last week... Uh, Phil helped to see that Jesus has been on a journey uh, in the area where the people weren't uh, of Jewish extraction, the so-called Gentiles. Uh, There he fed 4,000 and now he's back just inside the land of Israel. And we read this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "Uh, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. Now, the people in the villages around Caesarea Philippi have clearly heard something of the miracles and the teaching of Jesus. They have a general sense of who they think Jesus is. And to their mind, in a general way, they think he's like one of the prophets. And the the messages of the prophets uh, really had helped over time to shape the nation of Israel. And there was a perception and an understanding, if you like, that the words that the prophets had spoken had been for the people generally. That they were good for the nation overall. So the people had developed their perspective about who Jesus was. And it was vague. And it was non-specific. In a general way, it's saying that Jesus is a prophetic voice sent by God for the nation as a whole. This idea that religion is good and right, that it has its place, but it's more general than specific. It's something for the nation, not for the individual. They were, if you like, completely overshadowed by religion. Uh, They came close to God, but they never truly let God penetrate their hearts. Their perspective was that being around religion and religious things, well, that was enough to make them right with God. Their hearts and their lives were overshadowed by God, but they had not been penetrated by God. Overshadowed, but not penetrated. Now, before we start to think, well, that was then, uh, it's different for us now, I want, us to show, I want to show you that actually the problem is exactly the same now uh, as it was then. The danger is just as real now. And it's a problem, really, that came to fore uh, in the time of uh, the Victorians. Uh, one commentator uh, noticed that there was a social project at that time to overcome all the social ills of the time by focusing the people on good moral behaviour, to moderate behaviour, to get people to behave in the right way way and when the church pushed back and said well actually no people's hearts need to be transformed there needs to be an encounter with the living god not simply moderated behavior well the nation that notion just wasn't well received certainly not by the leaders of the nation Uh, lord melbourne Uh, He was the first prime minister when Queen Victoria came to the throne for her. And he said 
Things have come to a pretty pass if religion is going to start to be personal now. Okay, Lord Melbourne. And so religion was pushed more and more into the civic sphere, the things that we did. That religion was all about having a healthy social conduct or to add weight and significance to some of the things that we as a culture or a society do. So if you have a state funeral, you have readings from scripture to dignify it. Uh, If you're at a public inquiry, then place your hand on a Bible to show that you will tell the truth. When you have children, you send them off to Sunday school so they'll get good morals and behave well and play with nice people. And what this commentator said about the perspective that the Victorians had about Christianity, but the perspective that they had about Jesus was this. He said the trouble with the Victorians was their religion overshadowed them. It never penetrated them. It's not just a problem for the Victorians. It's a problem for us today. A couple of weeks ago, I was very kindly invited by someone here to go to a meal uh, that a royal society was having uh, at a swanky club on Pall Mall in London. Uh, I found myself chatting chatting, uh, to the president of uh, the society before dinner. This chap, absolutely fine fellow, uh, pillar of the society, huge servant heart. He's active in local politics, and he was even uh, the Lord Mayor of his borough. And as we spoke, uh, he discovered that I'm a pastor at a church. And so he told me very quickly, oh, I too am a Christian. So I asked him, what, what is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? And he said, well, without flinching, that Christianity is a force for good in the world. That it's for moral good in the community. And that was it. It was all about out there. Overshadowed. But not penetrated. And it's true, I guess, not just of the social elite in private clubs in London. Uh, It's true of those we meet at work. It's true of those we meet at the school gates. It's true of those we meet in the chip shop. So many people we meet will say that they are spiritual, that there's some general notion about who God is, but it's not personal. They're overshadowed by religion and just not penetrated. What we, what we need to do, uh, for instance, through our addiction ministry, through evangelism equipping, uh, and through our conduct as well, the way that we live, is to help those who've been overshadowed by religion to come to grips with the second question that Jesus asks. Our second point. Who do you, who do you say that I am? In verse 29, we read this. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You see, Jesus, having listened to the answer to the question, Who do people say I am? He now turns directly to them. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And for us to make sense of this, we need to go back to the first part uh, of our reading uh, this morning. Do take a look down at verses uh, 22 uh, through 25. Uh, And there we see that Jesus comes to a man who's blind. Jesus puts spit 
on the man's eyes as his start start as his sight starts to come back. Uh, it's a bit broken. It's not completely healed. And at first, uh, he sees something. Uh, he sees people walking around, and he says, "Well, they they look like trees." The man sees something. But the conclusion he reaches is wrong because trees, obviously, they don't move. But with another application of Jesus' hands, the man's sight is fully restored. And Mark gives us that healing immediately before this conversation to help us see that it's possible for us to have our eyes partly opened, to have our eyes partly opened, but not actually see what's really there. And in verse 29, we read that Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the King the chosen one, the savior that God said he was going to send into the world to bring freedom to the captives, break the bonds of sin and death. And that is the one that is going to set God's people free. And as Peter looked at Jesus, like the man whose sight was being gradually healed, at first, Peter only saw the savior that he was expecting. A savior to rescue the nation from the oppression of the Romans who were occupying the land at the time. And so the declaration by Peter, you're the Messiah, is both true, but it's also wide of the mark. Take a look with me at verses 31 through 32. Uh, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And we know that Jesus, that Peter has this wrong because of what we read in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Jesus spoke about what he must do, what the Messiah must do do but that just didn't fit into the way peter saw the world it just didn't fit into his grid peter's gaining sight but he's not able to fully see so jesus tells him that he must be handed over that he must suffer and he must die and that makes absolutely no sense at all to peter peter can see that jesus is the messiah but can't see what that means and so peter rebukes jesus Uh, and that word rebuke um, it's the same word that's used uh, in the gospels where jesus rebukes demons to drive them out of people it's a really really strong word see peter's sure that jesus is out of his mind that's how vehemently peter objects to what jesus has told him Peter's perspective on Jesus is it's a bit muddled. Uh, he looks at the world around him and is sure that what is needed is to have a king who will come in and clear out the occupying forces. The king who looks at the injustices that Peter sees and in the way that Peter sees them and then puts them right. And we can be like that too, can't we? We can certainly be like that as well. And we look at the trials that we're currently engulfed in, the things that are blowing us under the waves. 
And we can ask for God to provide an answer in the form that we would like. That we too want a king who would come in strength and do the things that we want him to do. To put things right the way we want them to be right. But sometimes our health doesn't improve. Sometimes that promotion just doesn't come through. Sometimes our children, they just keep on rebelling. And sometimes broken relationships, they just don't heal. And if we've been overshadowed by religion, then when those things happen, when those challenges come, they will crush us. Because the king we need is not one that comes in the way that we want all the time. But he comes in the way that we need all the time. He comes not to overshadow us, but he comes to break into our hearts, to pierce our hearts. We need a king that will change our hearts. And for that, we need a new perspective. And Jesus gives us that. Take a look with me, will you, at verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Uh, firstly, uh, do, 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 do notice that uh, here Peter is absolutely right in seeing that the Messiah is the one who has power beyond imagining. Incredible power. And Jesus, recognizing that Peter's correctly identified him as the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one, appointed by God, now describes the Messiah as Son of Man. Uh, that's Jesus' favorite designation uh, for himself. And that speaks of uh, a shadowy figure that God gives in a vision to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, this person, this son of man, is the one who's presented before the ancient of days, the one who's presented before God himself. He's anointed and he's appointed as the king. And to him, all dominion is given. All glory and power is given to him. All people and nations, we're told, all people will serve this king, this son of man. That the dominion he has is everlasting. It's not an earthly dominion that will come and go, but it's a heavenly one. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And in that dominion, the son of man is the king. Son of man is the king of heaven. And Jesus says, yeah, Peter, you're right. I have that power. But then Jesus speaks of what he must do. And it blows his mind. Peter expects that this king, this powerful son of man, must climb a throne. He must use his power to rule and reign and put down injustice. But Jesus says the son of man's come to do something else. Uh, did you notice that in uh, verse 31? The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed. Peter's perspective was completely worldly. The perspective from heaven is completely different. When God sends the true king 
to rescue his people. Actually, there's only one way that he can do that rescue. You see, there's only one enemy, really. There's only one enemy that can kill us, that can really kill us. Of all the problems we have, there is one problem that is bigger than all the other problems that we have. And that problem is our rebellion against God. The way in which we take the good things that God has given us, we take his gifts and we behave as if he's just not there. We ignore him. We live as though it's our perspective that matters, when actually it's God's perspective that matters. And the only thing that can really kill us, the only thing that can really kill us is not having a right relationship with God. We must be right with God. And to fix the biggest problem that we have, God sends Jesus the one who is the true king, robed in majesty in heaven, with all power and dominion, needing nothing from us, nothing at all. Yet he looks down from heaven and he sets his love on us. He sets his love on us. And here we are, mired in our rebellion, actively shaking our fist at God. And yet God's love was deeper and stronger than our hatred and rejection of him. See, even though God knew that the price of our rebellion was huge, the penalty for rejecting God was so vast that nothing other than the death of his only son could pay for that. It's the only thing that could fix it. Seeing that cost, seeing our desperate plight, the eternal danger that we are in, Jesus came. Jesus came. The powerful and the mighty son of God came. But he didn't come to a crowd that cried out, hallelujah. He didn't come to climb on a throne and have a robe placed around his shoulders. He didn't come to be crowned with fine jewels. He came to a crowd that cried out. Crucify, crucify. He came to those he had created and he stood before them and was the victim of their injustice. He climbed a cross and was beaten. The true king was crowned with thorns and killed on a Roman cross. And he did all of this, all of this. Dying the death that you and I deserve in our place so that he could have us eternally. All of the power, the might, the majesty, the glory was given up, laid down so that the offer of forgiveness and salvation could be made to us. To not be forgiven, to not only be forgiven, not just that, but to be made children children of the one true living God, eternally right with the Father. But we must choose. We must choose for Jesus now. We cannot wait until we die and hope that he will then welcome us. 
Verse 38, he tells us that if we're ashamed of Jesus now, in other words, if we won't accept his offer of salvation, if we reject what he says about who he is and how we come to the Father, that he is the only one who can make us right with God. He says if we will not turn and trust him now, that when we go through death and stand before him on that day, he will be ashamed of us. He will reject us. The offer of salvation is only valid on this side of death. If you haven't chosen for Christ, why won't you? Even today, turn to the one whose love for you is so great that he would rather die than lose you. Come to him. Come to him. And if that's you this morning, speak to me, speak to Neil, speak to Nigel. Speak to Liz, but speak to somebody this morning. Well, that's the perspective that we need, right? That, that, that's, that our rebellion against God is so evil, so wicked, so horrible, that nothing other than the death of God's own son could make us right with him. And that at the very same time, at the very same time, he willingly came and died for us. And that's the truth that our hearts need, that we are more wicked than we dared imagine. And yet we are more loved than we ever dare hope at the very same time. That's the truth that we need. And as we see those two things together, we'll no longer be overshadowed by religion. We'll have hearts that have been pierced. Hearts that have met the Lord Jesus. We will in here we'll know his love for us we'll have the person and the power of the Holy Spirit alive in our hearts we'll have the love of God poured into our hearts and as we see that love as we see that love it will transform us as Jesus says verses 34 to 35 that we'll long to live lives for Jesus We'll put aside our vain ambitions and our small goals. We'll long to live the way that the one who has rescued us calls us to live. Our changed heart's desire will be to fully live for Jesus, to pick up our cross daily and follow the one who has saved us. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like to pick up our cross daily? It looks like surrendering ourselves to his call on our life and for each of us that will look slightly different Uh, for some like the disciples it will look like leaving your job your family and your friends Uh, in our midst we have Dave Green who's doing just that for others of us it will mean letting go of our pride to let go of our positions of authority not to stand on our credentials And no longer let social status define who we are. Uh, For those of us who are complacent and prone to laziness, uh, the call is to put aside our love of ease and search for ways to serve. Uh, For those of us who are faint-hearted, the call is to abandon our craving for security and step out for the Lord in faith. For those of us who are controlled by anger, The call is to lay aside our desire for revenge and to work for peace and for reconciliation. 
The list just goes on and on and on. So ask yourself, what is there in you that stops you from surrendering your life, your desires, and your goals to the Lord Jesus? Know this, that as you surrender your life, as you submit your life to Christ, it will not be smaller. It will be bigger. Your life will not be shallower. It will be deeper. You will not be poorer, but richer. You will not be bound up. You'll be set free. So let me close with a challenge and an encouragement. The trouble that uh, I guess many people have is they think too small. They approach the Son of Man and they think too small. Uh, They see Jesus and they don't want to surrender everything to him. They think that Jesus is a bit like a vitamin supplement, something nice to have on the side. I say they don't need to put Jesus at the center of their lives, that it's okay to have a little bit of Jesus to top you up, to get you over the humps in life. Uh, Wilbur Rees wrote a short poem uh, in the 1970s called Three Dollars Worth of God, a poem about wanting a little God, but not too much. It says this, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a foreigner or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Sometimes we only want a little because we haven't seen the enormity of the one that we've come to. We haven't properly seen his power, his might. We haven't properly seen the depths of his compassion and his love for us. We have the wrong perspective. We have too small a vision of what God can do in our lives. We just need to submit to him and pick up our cross. And we know we can submit and we know that we can trust him. Why? Because he went to the cross and he died for us so that we could be brought to eternal life. Jesus picked up the largest cross ever so that we might pick up our small crosses every day. Because as we do that, we will be transformed. We will have the power of God at work in our hearts. An encouragement from C.S. Lewis as he thinks about the transforming work of God in our lives as we live more and more for Jesus and allow his Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts. And he says this, imagine yourself, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. 
He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Uh, You knew that those jobs needed doing and you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Have we settled for three dollars worth of God? When the king of the universe longs to come and live within us. To transform us. I'm going to close uh, and pray. There'll be a couple of minutes of silence just for us to reflect uh, on what that second question. Who do you, who do you say that I am? Let me just pray and there'll be a couple of minutes of silence and then the band uh, will lead us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Uh, These amazing truths, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the anointed one, who has come to set us free from our disordered worship, our sin, our addictions. Thank you that even though it cost your son his life, your only son his life, he was willing to come to pay the price in our place that we might know you. Please, Heavenly Father, by your Spirit this morning, would you fan into flame that love that we have for you, that we might not settle for $3 worth of God, that we might long for a palace in our hearts. And I do pray for those who are far from you this morning, please would you be at work in their hearts. Would you soften them? Please would you draw them to yourself. Might they see this gospel offer and long to respond to your work in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you um, are wondering, who is this Jesus? I want to know him. I don't know him at the moment. If you'd like to know more about who he is, do have a word with Saab and myself. After, very, very pleased to talk more about the difference he can make to your life. If he hasn't already made a difference, but you're just wondering... What does it mean to take up my cross daily? Um, How can I do that in my situation? Um, Do keep praying. Pray with the person next to you. Pray with the prayer ministry team. We'll be in the corner with the the red lanyards. Let's pray pray now to to close. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that You took up your cross for us so that we can be saved, so that we can be made right with God. And we do pray for any here who've not yet understood who exactly you are and what you came to do for them. We pray that in your mercy, you would open their eyes. And Lord, for those of us who do follow you, 
We pray that you'd send us out from here with the strength of your spirit to deny ourselves each day, to take up our cross. Help us to be willing to make the sacrifices we need to make to ensure that you are the number one in our lives. For your glory's sake. Amen.